You know, we certainly do uh, celebrate freedom, and tonight we're going to talk a little about the Feast of Jubilee and that freedom. We also just sang about storms. One of the things that we have the freedom of is uh, being free from the danger of uh, the hurricane that's coming through. So I thought we might want to take a moment and just uh, pray for safety. The next 24 hours are pretty critical to a lot of people. Pray for recovery for many who are in Houston who are still recovering from the last one. And just ask that God would uh, protect and give people uh, some real freedom uh, from danger here. Let's take a moment and do that. Father, you told us that natural disasters um, are part of a broken world. We long for a world with no hurricanes and tornadoes. God, and that was that perfect original creation you gave us. But Father, we live between those worlds, the world to come when we, you will fix everything and the world that was. In the midst of that, Father, we ask that you will give wisdom, give direction, bring the people together, the resources together. We would ask that you would steer that storm in a place that would cause the least amount of damage to, uh, to people and possessions, Father. And through all that, Father, that you would uh, just show amazing ways that you take the damages and the destruction that's going on and use it uh, for your glory. And through all that, Father, we ask that you protect people and protect life especially. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have two weeks left in, uh, in Leviticus, and it's been six months. And I made you a promise that be your, your least favorite book of the Bible would become your favorite. And I have a, had a few conversions, and I've had a few said, well, I don't hate it anymore. So just know, this week and next, and you will be one of the one percenters. The one percenters who dare to go verse by verse through the book of Leviticus. And you will have a Leviticus-sized jewel in your crown when you get to heaven. It's a very sought-after crown that you may cast before the Messiah. I want you to imagine tonight the opportunity to sneak in and read somebody's diary. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could read the diary of what Jewish people were thinking around 100 B.C. prior to Jesus? What if we could sneak in and sort of pull out their commentary or, or, or look at some of the manuscripts they're reading and thinking, what did they think about the Bible? What did they think about the Messiah? What were they thinking about the year of Jubilee prior to the Messiah coming? And as, as Doug shared with us last week, Jesus references the, the Feast of Jubilee and said he's the ultimate fulfillment of it. Well, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls, besides in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, if you have not seen it before, I got a chance to visit there twice now, we found some of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible showing that all the accusations that errors had crept in over the years just had really no substantiation because these new ancient manuscripts again proved the incredible legitimacy of the copying process. But in the midst of the manuscripts was also, besides copies of the Bible, here in Qumran, the Essenes had also written some commentary, a diary, a midrash it's called, of their thoughts on the Bible in its application at 100 B.C., one of these pieces called Melchizedek 11Q, real technical, real creative name there, guys. Um, but it actually shows their thoughts on the year of Jubilee at around 100 B.C. And it cites several things in here. Number one, they saw the year of Jubilee in this text as a Jewish debt elimination festival, which it was. But ultimately pointed to something greater. It would be spiritually fulfilled in the Messiah. That's at 100 B.C. 
2, they saw the Messiah as a combination of high priest and king like Melchizedek from the book of Genesis. Also fascinating, in 100 B.C., they saw this high priest king as the fulfillment of the Psalms and Isaiah as being fully human and fully God. And they get that of Psalms like this one. The Lord said to my Lord, see the word Lord's in there twice? How can a monotheistic worldview have the Lord in there twice? Jesus even stumped some of the Pharisees one day. He says, hey, who was David talking to when he said, the Lord said to my Lord? And Jesus thinking, he was talking to me. I remember having that conversation with my father. So this idea that we're going to learn the applications to the year of Jubilee to the Jewish people, and we're going to try and find some principles that apply to us today related to the festival. But even those waiting for the Messiah saw the ultimate fulfillment of this debt elimination uh, festival was in the spiritual debt elimination festival that the Messiah would ultimately fulfill for us. The kingdom of God and the manifestation of it now and of the kingdom to come is really what this passage is about. It's a taste now of the kingdom, but a feast later in the ultimate elimination of debt, the ultimate elimination of hurricanes and pain and agony and tears. It's a taste now of the kingdom and a feast later. And my hope is as we begin to unpack this, that the main application I'm going to find, or I found, that I hope you can find, is it teaches us how to love people and use things. And my heart has a tendency to flip those. I start using people and loving things. But the Jewish Feast of Jubilee reminds me to realign my priorities, to find the purpose of God in my life as I begin to love people and use things to bless and to set people up for success. So first, a taste now of the kingdom. First, we get a taste of stewardship. Real interesting passage that talks about walled land during the year of Jubilee is a one-year rent-to-own purchase program. If a man sells a house in a walled city, and he may redeem it within the whole year after it's sold. So basically, you do a lease purchase. But though you've done the lease purchase, you as the seller, the reason you sold this thing is you need some cash flow, But before they buy it, you have the ability to buy it back from them. It's a lease purchase with you having the rights to be able to buy back your property within one year. Within one full year, he can redeem it or buy it back. If you don't redeem within the year, though, it's a one-year rent-to-own kind of thing. The house in the walled city shall become permanently to him who bought it. Throughout his generations, it shall be released in the Jubilee. So what he's saying here is that there's going to be times people have cash flow issues and they're going to be able to sell pieces of property they own. But God even wanted to give the opportunity, in case it was just a a one-time moment or a challenging season in their business, that they had one year to buy back their property in case the cash flow changed. But even then he says, everything that the Jewish people owned was under a 70-year lease to plant. Try that again. Everything in the Jewish community was a lease to own. Because keep in mind, there were 12 tribes. Each of the 12 tribes was given a piece of land. And so within those families, every 70 years, the land returned to the family members. So you as a tribe of Jacob, for example, might sell a city or or, or lease out a piece of of land or a piece of property. But in case your kids and grandkids made some pretty bad decisions, 
didn't spend the money wisely, and suddenly Benjamin has sort of hoarded all of the, 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 it's like playing Monopoly. The one guy ends up with all the money, right? At the end of 70 years, even though Benjamin might have, his family might have it all, it returned to all of the 12 tribes. God put this in place to keep the different tribes from exploiting one another, from keeping you from really suffering the consequences of bad decisions that your kids or your, your fathers or grandfathers made. There was a 70-year reset. And here he's given us very specific details. This particular one is this one-year rent-to-own lease purchase program. I don't know if you've ever done one of these. I remember when we moved up here 13 years ago, I was stuck. I had two houses down in LaGrange, and we were already moving up here, and so I had to lease purchase my home. Now, our house in LaGrange, we loved this house, but it did have bats. And when I say it had bats, I mean Beth and I would be laying in our bed at night. Oh! Chad! What, Beth? It's a bat! And I want you to do something about it. You get it, and I'll get a man. And so I'm chasing this bat in the middle of the night, flying around our bedroom. And it made its way over to the ceiling fan. And I'm like, what do you do? So I grabbed the laundry basket. Oh, missed. Oh, missed. Oh, I got it. These bats can get through a hole the size of a quarter. And I know that because I have patched up all the places. I don't know what your laundry baskets look like, but mine have a lot of holes bigger than a quarter. So finally, I captured the garbage can, put the magazine underneath, and I got the bat. What do I do with this thing? I brought him to the toilet. Pulled the magazine up. <laughs> he falls in the toilet. No, 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 I did it. <laughs> so when we went to sell the house, I told the buyers, listen, I patched up all the holes, but about twice a year we have bats, sometimes four times a year, bats come through our house. Oh, it'll be fine. I said, all right, just want to let you know because I, I don't want you to feel like I'm being dishonest. Well, apparently the bat problem got a lot worse during the first year I was here because we came to the week of close and I needed the money, the equity out from the house in order to um, pay for the house we bought here up in Loveland. And so they call two weeks before closing and say, we're not going to buy the house. We got bats everywhere. You lied to us. I'm like, oh my goodness, my character's on the line. I said, well, I told you we had bats occasionally. Not like this. Apparently not like this. I said, I'll tell you what, if you want out of the contract, you know, my, my character is worth uh, giving you the opportunity to break the contract. Um, I don't you feel like I lied to you. He said, well, you won't break the contract. Immediately kind of changed the tone of the conversation for the lease purchase that we did. He said, but you got to do something about this. So I called around, and there's a bat exclusion, it's called. And so I brought in a bat expert, but he couldn't take the... <laughs> the bats out of the house for two weeks because it was during the endangered season, the mating season, so you can't get the bats out of your house during these two months. And so I said, well, I'll give you $2,000 um, to pay for the bat exclusion, and they said, all right. And so we flew down to Georgia, and we made this deal. And it was sort of a reminder in that moment because I needed the things, the money, but I also didn't want to use people in the midst of it. And so that was sort of a real-time conversation about a lease to purchase. I needed my equity out, but at the same time, I didn't want to exploit somebody or have my character challenged in the midst of it. 
And that's sort of the principles that are going on here. So he moves from this, this walled city, this one-year uh, own, rent-to-own lease purchase, to a field. Now, fields, in contrast to these walled cities, they're always a 70-year lease to fellow Hebrews. I talked about the 12 different tribes. Each had pieces of property given to them. And they stayed in the family. At the end of 70 years, no matter who you sold it to, they got released or given back to the original family. As long as you sold it Hebrew to Hebrew. Which is why it's such a big deal. If you sold a piece of property to the Gentiles, it was gone forever. Which is why in the book of Ruth, you have such a challenge because Ruth has lost her property. It was sold to Gentiles. And Boaz has to come in and wants to redeem it back before it gets sold out of the, the Hebrew family. So within the Hebrew HOA, the, co- the covenant they made with God and each other, is that every 70 years, you return the land. Now, this isn't socialism or communism. This is very clear property rights. That's the real distinction of free enterprise. Property rights, you own things. You want to be very generous with your things, but it's not owned by somebody else. It's not owned by the community. The land was owned by the individual tribes, and at the end of 70 years, you know the contract going into it. If you bought it along the way, you knew that land would be returned to the family, and you were just leasing it during that time. So, at the end of the 70 years, it would be released in the Jubilee. And during the Jubilee, it was an incredible celebration. Incredible celebration. In fact, when they went to, uh, to celebrate the, uh, the Jubilee, they would often have a horn. And so they would sound it. Doug mentioned that last week, the, the Havel, you know. Gather together. We're going to be free. We're going to get our land back. No more debt. All paid off. It would be the equivalent of that triangle, you know, ding, 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 come and get it, kind of thing. And the reason it was such a jubilee or celebration is it was generational debt that was wiped out. It was returning of opportunity. It was breaking free from generational poverty. All this was happening at this feast of jubilee. The second thing he mentions, or the third thing rather, is that, oh, I want to tell you a story. Sorry, I'll tell you a story. One of the most incredible leaf purchases I ever heard is a guy by the name of um, Arthur Guinness. So he's the guy who started Guinness Beer. Real strong Christian, and he was actually really against people getting uh, drunk and the drunkenness in Ireland. He wanted to create a type of nutritional alcohol that people could drink because the water was so bad. So he made this corn-based alcohol called Guinness Beer. He's a real strong Christian who wants to produce something that will be healthy for the people who drink it, he becomes the hero of Ireland. And this book tells a little history of that. He is the father of the Sunday School movement in Ireland, teaching especially the young, poor, and impoverished about the Bible, how to read and write through the money he makes. His employees, he sees them as given to him by God. And in 17, whatever it was, they all had free medical care. He had doctors on staff there at the, at the business. Dennis on staff and a masseuse on staff are all of his employees. He negotiates this lease. It was, here's the, here's the, the deals of the contract. 900 year contract he negotiated on this peninsula where the factory sits today. And guess how much he got the contract for to keep his company and to keep his factory on that peninsula. 45 pounds locked in for 900 years. That's a business guy. 
But as I read this book, not knowing much about Guinness, because I'm not a big drinker, nor about Arthur, I was amazed to see how a business owner was thinking through how to treat his employees, how to treat his community. There was a huge famine that went through Ireland, and they have got statues of Arthur Guinness because he gave so much to the poor that he literally saved, and, and several statues of him, that they give him credit for saving several towns during some of the famines that went through. You know, it's an amazing story about an incredible lease purchase and a man who's trying to treat his employees, his community, and his nation in a way that God would want him to. You know, our third uh, category here is Levite cities. The Levites, think Levites, priests, the, the pastors, the priests of the day. They had certain cities given to them, but they were always under a buyback clause. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities are their possession. Now keep in mind, the Levites, unlike others who could sort of build their business, they were often at the mercy of whether or not people were giving their tithes and offerings to the church. Their income was based on that. So God had a supplemental income that sort of secured some assets for them, which were these cities. And the Levites can redeem at any time these cities. So in case they had a cash flow problem, they could sell the cities or they could sell the property, but they didn't have just a year to buy it back. They could always buy it back. So God gave them a little bit more leniency because their income was based on other people choosing to give for their income. Now, if a man purchased a house from the Levites and the house was sold in the city of possession shall be released in Jubilee. So in the same way as the property went back to these 12 tribes, these particular cities, even if there was a cash flow issue and they rented it out, sold it, it would also be returned to the Levites. And that was all part of the property contracts they had there. Now, what's the application here for us today? Well, number one, property rights are important. And number two, we need to be careful not to get too indebtedness. Be careful that we don't make decisions where we lose property and don't have the margin to get it back. But I think there's a principle here for all of our dealings that we need to incorporate whatever the just market price is, but also the golden rule. How we treat our employers, how we treat our clients, our purchasers. We need to not just have the the market price, that's certainly a starting point, but also say the marketplace plus the golden rule, the common good. If everybody treated people the way I'm doing this, this contract, would we have a better society? Because the real principles that are flowing through the year of Jubilee is what is good for everybody? How do we make sure that this will be good for you, good for me, and really make the society as a whole better? I remember uh, back when I was moving from LaGrange, we had just built this house. I was trying to sell this other house, not the one we owned, but this investment property. So we finished building it, and I got a call. We had it under contract. We were about to close on that house. And she called me up. No, I called her, rather. I got all the paperwork for the closing. And I went, oh, my goodness, this, this person who's about to buy this rental house of mine is really underwater. I mean, this, the percentage they're paying was way too high. And this was a single mom and one child. I'm like, I, don't, I think she's going to go bankrupt. Now, I needed the money. I wanted to get out of my property, out of that part of the country. But I actually asked if I could talk to the buyer before we got to the table. I said, listen, I'm excited. This is a great house. We just finished building it. It is built incredibly well. It's going to have great memories for your family. But I'm really concerned that you're biting off more than you can chew. So I know you've signed the contract. I just got all the closing papers. I'm really, really concerned that this is too much for you. And she said, well, I'm definitely going to buy it. And, and I said, all right. So I didn't feel obligated to stop her from making a bad decision. <laughs> I didn't feel obligated to stop people from making unwise decisions. The, the, the Bible doesn't endorse codependency. 
But I did feel like in that moment, I need to at least give some warning. Hey, I've read through some paperwork. I'm concerned. And as the seller, who desperately wants to sell this thing, it was a fair price. But I also felt like I need to have a conversation about the common good. Do you realize? Have you read this? And she ended up buying the property. We just had this week, um, one of our teams finished building a Habitat to Humanity house. We just dedicated that to a family. Because we believe that the principles of the Jubilee is something we should be doing as a church here, near, and far. So whether it's building houses for those who maybe had generational poverty and haven't had the opportunity to, to have the kind of financial success we've had, we're involved in that. We sent teams down to Happy Church. This is a picture of uh, one of our many teams. We have junior high teams and high school teams. A couple hours from here down in Tennessee, one of the most impoverished areas of the country. Where we, we take resources down, we take teams down to love on people, to work with Happy Church, which is the name of the church, one of the happiest places that these kids and families see every week, and to really help them with real tangible needs, hot water heaters and things like that, because the principle of the Jubilee is to think about how do I love others? How do I help others? How do I give people a taste of the kingdom now and what God's doing in their life? Well, next, it goes on. It says, now, I also want you to know this is a taste of... I want my people who are manifesting the kingdom to refuse to exploit the poor and the powerless amongst them. See, if one of your brethren becomes poor, Hebrew to Hebrew he's talking about here, and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, like a stranger or sojourner, that he may live with you. So whenever it's possible, I want you to try and help those who've fallen into poverty. Take no usury, that's interest, or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. He says, I want you to think about how you felt when you were in slavery. When you were in actual slavery, when somebody finds themselves in financial slavery, see if you can provide an opportunity to get people back on their feet. Look for opportunities to use people, to love people, to, to, to use opportunities for people, and to help people get back where they need to be, where they can... Now, with this comes all kinds of problems. You're never allowed as a Christian to take interest from somebody else? Is that what it says? Does that mean that the poor, after they've made some bad decisions and they're higher risk, that you're not allowed to charge them a higher interest rate, even though they've proven themselves to be higher risk? What would business be like if we followed these practices? It seemed like it would be a disaster. So Christians have really wrestled with this over the years. What is the application of these principles to an American society today? And there's been really a lot of difference of opinion. So let me give you a couple thoughts. I think the main principle that applied then and applies to us today is whatever we do, you should not exploit people who are in financial binds. Now, it does not mean that there's not a great business opportunity because you're buying up pieces of something that somebody ran to the ground. That's not necessarily exploiting somebody. In fact, they're probably going to go bankrupt and they need somebody to buy some of those assets back. So you're going to apply the market price and the common good and, and the golden rule as you're thinking about this as a Christian. But the main thing is, I'm not going to exploit the powerless who don't have any power in those different moments. But the Bible also has had several people through history trying to wrestle with this. I'll give you a couple of the folks who wrestled with it. One more thought before I do that. Secondly, remember, part of this that applied then that doesn't apply to us today is this was a Jewish community in what I've called the the HOA covenant. They've committed going into this to do this. 
God didn't say to apply this to the Amorites or apply this to the Egyptians or apply this to the Romans. So immediately there's going to be a different application from a theocracy, a Jewish theocracy, to a pluralistic democratic republic we're in. So here's how C.S. Lewis wrestled with it. Are Christians ever allowed to take interest? C.S. Lewis said, you know, some people say that Moses and Aristotle, who's also against interest, and the Christian agreed in forbidding all interest, or usury as they called it. They could not have foreseen the joint stock company and were only um, dunking of private money lending and that. Therefore, we need not bother about what they said. That is a question I cannot decide on. So C.S. Lewis thought about this, and he can't quite figure it out. But I should not have been honest if I had not told you that three great civilizations had agreed, or so it seemed at first, in condemning the whole thing on which we based our whole life. Well, first of all, if C.S. Lewis couldn't figure it out, I'm not sure we're going to figure it out. But you see the tension he's doing? He's saying the principle of getting reward or interest for your risk built three great societies, or built our current world, but there has been a tradition in the Greeks, in Moses, to for, for, forbid interest. We need to come at this and try and figure this out, weighing the consequences of it. So I'll give you two more Christian thinkers. Martin Luther showed up, and Martin Luther was diabolically opposed to interest. I mean, he raged against it. He said, anytime you take interest for anything, it's wrong. Which actually led to some pretty anti-Semitic things that Hitler used in some pretty horrible ways in World War II. And I read several of his sermons in preparation for this talk, and I'm telling you, he was no compromise on ever taking interest. And then John Calvin showed up. And John Calvin did something amazing that really changed the whole world as we know it. So John Calvin was also a Christian. He was known as one of the reformers. And he started saying, wait a second, guys, how about instead of we theorizing, let's begin to look at the whole Bible. Jesus is not against interest. I said, how do you know that? He said, whatever usury is, it must be like high exploitive interest rates. It can't mean general interest rates. To which they say, where do you get that out of the Bible? He says, you remember the, power, the, the parable of the talents? The ten, it's not equally distributed. Ten, use it well, the master gives him ten. The five uses it well, gets five. Do you remember the one? Jesus comes to the one with one talent and says, why did you bury that? You should have at least put it in the bank, and got interest. This is revolutionary. It's right there, right? So whatever Jesus is saying there, he says interest isn't all bad. In fact, God was telling the guy with one, you should have got interest. And that's where Christian thinkers begin to say, you know what? Usury is exploitive interest rates, but actually getting a, a reward for your risk is not only a, a good thing, it's a God thing. When John Calvin gave his defense for this, capitalism began to explode throughout the whole world. Because now, everyone was holding their capital, holding their land. Because when you loaned it to somebody for their business or for, an, uh, uh, for their farm, there was no reward. There was only a downside. You used it, you ran into the ground, okay, I lost my capital. You never got any 10% return, 20% return. There was no reward ever or interest for your risk. So everybody hoarded their capital. When John Calvin came along and made a distinction between usury and interest, all of a sudden people said, it is okay as a follower of Jesus to risk my capital, risk my land, and that risk comes the reward. And you negotiated that, and you could then 
risk your money and get some money back for a business venture. And through Scotland, this, this radically moves through Scotland, moves through England. And then it comes over and really hits the ground when America is formed. And all of that came from after hundreds and hundreds of years of people being locked up with interest is always wrong, John Calvin building a defense from Jesus that there were appropriate ways to build interest that could expand an economy. And that's where we are today. So... Quick history lesson on how we got where we are today on usury. Next, he moves now from not only a taste of financial freedom, but this idea in the future that that in the future nobody's in slavery. There's nobody who's enslaved or owns other people or, or, or has debtedness. So let's create a society that really is built around the idea of abolishing slavery. And here's where he begins. And I think the principle is this. That as Christians, we need to abolish slavery and, as you'll see, it's more about employees, help our employees work themselves to financial freedom. If one of your brethren, Hebrews, dwells by you, becomes poor, and he sells himself to you. So he's going to use the word slave, but keep in mind, like Doug mentioned last week, it's not really slavery like we think of that as this sort of horrible evil. This is an indentured servant. This is bankruptcy law. You've run out of resources, you've run out of capital, you sold away your land, all you can do now is sell away yourself. So you basically make a contract, I will work for a certain amount of years for you, I'll be free in the year of Jubilee, but until then I've got to work off my debt. And God says when people do that, they're basically your employees. But they're more than just employees, they're indentured servants' employees. And even when they are powerless because they need resources because they're indebted to you, they still need to work, but you know, you're to treat them a certain way. And look how he says One, you shall not compel them to serve you as a slave. So don't treat indentured servants who don't have a lot of power as if you own them. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you, and and he'll serve you until the year of Jubilee. So also, this indebtedness had to have a stopping point. So everyone always knew whether you're two years away from Jubilee or ten years away from Jubilee, that was part of the contract of your indentured servitude. And then he shall depart from you. He'll be free, he and his children, because he also might need to sell his wife or his children to say, we got a lot of debt to pay off. Tell you what, you know, John's going to pay off five years of the debt. My wife's going to pay off two years of debt. But this was a willing decision they made to basically work. And during that time, the employer would pay for them, uh, provide for them, take care of them, and treat them well, as you'll see in a moment. Then he would return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his father's, He gets the land back. And they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. And you shall not be sold as slaves. Don't think you own them. They are basically your employees and you're to honor those contracts. Now, this is why historically, people always wrestle when you come to these passages about slaves, not realizing the Bible's really talking about indentured servitude or employees, more it's talking about what we think of slavery. So whenever people are wrestling with, does the Bible support slavery? My short answer is, of course not. No. In fact, the Bible was the main text Americans used to call slavery evil. William Wilberforce in England, born-again Christian, used the Bible to say, we've got to stop slavery. Martin Luther King Jr., what did he do? Used the Bible. Strong Baptist minister Republican. And he's out there saying, we've got to stop the evil of slavery. Because he used the Bible as his catalyst for that. Like you've been to the Underground Railroad here, or the uh, Freedom Center, that really celebrates the, the freedom and tells the tragic story of slavery in our country. I've been there three or four times. 
some like two-thirds of the Underground Railroad came through this area of Cincinnati. And one of the men whose whole family escorted people to slavery, uh, from slavery to freedom was a man named John Rankin, a Presbyterian minister who told his family, slavery is evil, and the Bible teaches us that, so we're going to help liberate people. And they had places to hide in their houses and their kids. See, I'm in the Freedom Center. Just powerful example of born-again Christians who use the Bible as their text to say we should treat people well and, and no one should own another human being. It's all through the Bible. And it's all through history. Next, a taste of the kingdom is not only to treat our employees well and to try and abolish slavery, which Christians have done through time, but also don't treat people poorly in general. Now, I'm going to call this another piece of bankruptcy law and a piece of POW law. You shall not rule over him, the indentured servant, with vigor. So even when somebody made a contract and they were basically powerless to pay you off for the next 20 years, you were never to treat them with vigor or to treat them poorly, rigor. So you could not abuse them. You were to treat them like a brother. You shall fear your God in how you treat the people who work for you. As for your male and female indentured servants, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, uh, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Now we're going to talk about this in a second. We're going to now move into what I'm going to call POW law. And this is the most gnarly piece of this passage. What he's been saying is, within Hebrews, you're only allowed to be indentured servants and they have to go free now he's going to say if it happens to be a gentile there's going to be a whole lot more latitude and it is gnarly so i want to put this in the category of a pow law when the jews went to fight against the amalekites or against the canaanites in general in those days if you fought against another nation you would kill them all off men women children it was bloody that was normal practice God is going to give a practice here that is revolutionarily merciful based on the times. That if you come and, you know, this is also explained in Deuteronomy. When you come and destroy another nation, you try and offer them surrender, you try and avoid human casualties whenever possible, and instead of killing off the women and children, instead, you could actually take them into your home. But they don't get free at 70 years. Here's what he says. These POWs, prisoners of war these children of prisoners of wars who tried to kill you or take your property, uh, you can buy uh, the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in their land, and they shall become your property. It's the only place in the Bible that has human beings' property. It's very offensive, honestly. Um, and so the only way I've been able to figure this out is to put it into the category of POW law based on this. And you uh, may take them as inheritance for your children after you. It could be passed on from generation to generation to inherit them as a possession. And they shall be your permanent slaves. But with regard to your, your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over them with one another. Another metaphor that might help here is not just that of a POW, but a prison. I mean, this army destroyed your property. It destroyed your, your nation, destroyed all kinds of stuff. And so almost think about these families are paying their debt to society and they're paying back all the thing that their army destroyed, all the thing their army uh, devastated. It's almost like these prisoners of war are getting lifelong sentences back to back, multi-generational lifelong sentences to pay back all the damage they did to your nation. Anyway, I'll get you about 60% of the way there. It's a very challenging part of this passage. But I do think it brings up what Jesus said. Jesus said, even when you think about prisoners, what you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. For I was in prison and you, you, you came and visited me. 
there's an incredible warden by the name of Burl Kane. Burl Kane is a Christian who took over the Louisiana jail, was known as the most murderous, most vile, most violent jail in all of America. His mom was a Baptist, uh, real strong Baptist woman of faith, and she said, if you go there, you better serve those prisoners like Jesus would, because he's going to hold you accountable. Burl Kane did not want to go there. So he's been there, I don't know, 20 years now, and he said, most of these folks are spending lifelong, multi-lifelong sentences, no chance of parole ever, they're going to die here. He said, then they need to know about Jesus. Over the last 20 years, he found incentive programs that as you did things right, you got a little bit more freedom. Still within the the prison, you're not going to get out of prison, but little freedoms you could earn. He started a mentoring program. Four churches he is birthed out of, when I say birthed out of, are in the city. Here's a picture of one of the, of the churches. You can see the, the jail around it. I think there's like a hundred pastors he's trained, associate pastors. There's a seminary now in the prison. And what was once the most violent prison in America is now producing missionaries and, and uh, disciplers and pastors within the walls that they're all going to live there their whole life. And people are finding redemption, and people are finding forgiveness, and people are finding freedom, though they are still serving their debt to society. What's also amazing is he felt like God was asking him to help stop generational crime, because many of these people who are incarcerated have children who don't have a father. So he started a Skyping service, so that these fathers could actually Skype with their children to have a relationship, to warn them about the dangers of what they've done, and to mentor them, to encourage them to pursue Jesus, to find God, and also to change the way of their life. So if you haven't done any research on Burl Cain, amazing story of a man who's trying to break the cycles of, of poverty, break the cycles of generational criminality, all as the warden of one of the most violent, or what was the most violent prison in America. All right, last principle here, and then we're done. Three, when it's a fellow Jewish person, I want you to buy back people who get into debt whenever possible. If a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself. But remember, he didn't sell himself to a fellow Jew, which would get him free at 70 years. He sold himself to the Egyptian. And if you see one of your brethren who has such financial struggle that they sell themselves to an Egyptian, think of him as your brother. Go and redeem him or buy that debt from the Egyptian. Hey, I, I know John made a deal with you, my Egyptian friend, I'm God, and, and I, I, I want to buy that debt from you. I will pay the debt and he will be my indentured servant. And the reason he did that is so that this person had the hope of freedom when the year of Jubilee came. And he goes on, this whole rest of the chapter is actually about that. I want you to redeem him, redeem him, redeem him, redeem him. When he sells himself into slavery, go and redeem him. And if there are many, and how do you determine the price of that? What's well, based on how many years until the year of Jubilee? And he goes on and just continues that, and he shall repay him with the price of his redemption. But the principle here is this For the children of Israel are servants to me, they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Because I bought you or brought you out of Egypt to be free, whenever possible, try and help other people get free. That doesn't mean you can stop people from doing stupid things. It's not encouraging codependency. You can't stop people from doing dumb things over and over again. But you can come alongside and say, can I give you some advice? Can I help you take a different step? Hey, if you want to work hard, here's an opportunity here. Look for ways whenever possible not to exploit people, how to help people, how to meaningfully get people out of poverty. 
Which is why I think this is supposed to be a taste of the kingdom now, but you're never going to fully get rid of poverty. Jesus says the poor will always be with you until heaven. But it's a picture of heaven. The ultimate kingdom where there's no more slavery, no more pain, and ultimate freedom from our sins and from bondage. So what's the principle for us? Well, number one, God wants us to be financially free. Just like he wanted the people in Jewish times to be free. So number one, he wants us to be free from unsecured debt, not to make decisions that squeeze the margin out of our lives. Two, he wants us to be free from lack of margin in our time, in our checkbook. How do we make sure we have the freedom in our, in our schedules, freedom in our finances, that if God prompts us to give, if God prompts us to help, if God prompts us to get close to a situation, we have the time available to be used when his spirit nudges us. Three, three we need to be free or financially free to work in a way or be free from working in a way that exploits other people. That every human being we come in eye contact with, we should think, how do I treat somebody made in the image of God in this situation. Now, I had a terrible example of this last night. My wife and I went on a date, and I was really irritated because the movie theater that we go to is always so slow, and no matter what I do, it's like, how hard can it be to hit popcorn twice and a drink twice? And so I'm really irritated. And so I got the credit card in like three minutes in advance. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And it, okay, finally, okay. Hey, you put your credit card in? It's been there for about a minute and a half now. Okay, okay. okay. So finally, I pull it out. All right, well, we'll see you later. Oh, sir, don't leave yet. I'm getting, I'm getting more and more irritated. Now, this is a human being that God made. This is not a human being that was trained well, i got to say, but it's a human being that God made and loves. And I didn't see him as a person. I saw him as an irritant. So my wife is trying to sort of take the tension down. She says, well, my, my husband's pretty fast. He ought to go a little slower. To which I said, I'm not sure it's possible for me to go any slower. I'm not encouraging this kind of behavior, by the way. So I, he says, could you swipe it again? I went, I'll see how slow I can do it. We got it that time. Thanks, we'll be in the movie. Real snotty, real... Sn- and she's like, you know, you were really rude. I'm like... And it hit me like, oh my goodness, I was really rude. And I sort of had all my case for why it was irritable and why, you know, it was totally incompetent. I went, oh man, I just... I was really a jerk. And I think how often there's people around us serving us, people around us, our clients, our friends, our family members, people serving us, or poorly or otherwise that we don't really love them as people the way we treat them. I was using him as a mechanism to get popcorn into my uh, mouth and a drink so I could get to the movie quicker, but I didn't really treat him as a human being. And I think the challenge here in the whole year of Jubilee is to make sure that as we see the people around us, we're learning to love people and use things to benefit people, not to be so self-centered. Lastly, we need to help people work their way out of poverty, key being work. It's all through the Bible. They've got to work, but to give a path for them to get out of poverty if they're open to it. Work hard. God wants us to work really hard. Everything we do, do unto the Lord. Without worshiping our work, it doesn't become our identity. We worship God, and we worship through work, but we don't worship our work. And lastly, how do we give generously, very, very generously to God and other people seems to be a key principle here. Now, as we finish up today, um, there's a couple ways you can do that in giving. One, uh, obviously financially here, we've talked a lot about giving in the series. If giving is something you want to do here at Horizon, there's offering boxes there. There's ways you can give through uh, stocks and quarterly online giving is how Beth and I give. 
Also, for many of us, you'd say, I, I want to do something bigger, expand my horizon to helping the poor. We have ways you can help the poor here, near, and far. We work with City Gospel Mission. On Sunday nights, you can go down with our team Sunday nights to get, get a little taste of, of helping. Uh, take one of our teams, send your junior high kids or high school students, or even we have some college students many times, go down and work with Happy Church. Really get close to some, some folks who really are facing generational poverty and say, well, it's not easy to figure out how to do this, how to figure out how to help without hurting. Or maybe this time of year, a lot of our Belize teams, working with uh, Belize partners or working with back-to-back, begin to say, hey, I'd like to go on a foreign mission opportunity, uh, and I'd like to be part of helping people in that. Or maybe as you think about the hurricane, what's going on with, with Houston and what's going on in, in, in Florida, we are gonna, we're partnering right now with Matthew 25 Ministries. They've already got a great mechanism in place to send the resources down and to assess needs there. These are just some of the ways that we can begin to take the principle of the Jubilee and say we want to help the needs in our immediate community at our immediate time. Because God helped us when we were in poverty. We want to help other people facing challenges as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Jubilee. Thank you for the challenge for each one of us not to exploit others, not to walk past others, not treat people as objects but God, to be about the business of freedom. And Father, we ask that you would show us how we can treat the people around us, the business deals that we have, how we can appropriately allow your kingdom to be manifest in the way we do business, that people will be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight.